I just work here. David, the, what did, what's the story of this Ohio Aronka aviators it, flying? Yeah, it's a, a, a strange thing. It's a flying. Yeah? Yeah. What, what's, what's strange about it being a flying? I mean, I was looking at their website. There's some cool-looking airplanes on the cover of the website, but... Uh... Well, it just kind of jumped out of me. You know, we, uh, we, 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 we like to encourage the idea that uh, the reality that uh, being part of general aviation can be so much more than just, uh, you know, popping out to the airport when you need the airplane, go flying, and, and when you're done, go home. Uh, you know, that uh, there's a, a, a social network, that there's a lot to be gained, a lot of fun out there. And there's just some neat places to go. And this is far enough ahead on our schedule to, to it kind of jumped out at me that July 11th through the 13th at Alliance Barber Airport in Alliance, Ohio. And what pushed us over in, into, oh, we got to talk about this, is that they... Uh, they're doing this in conjunction with the the, the Taylor Craft Foundation, mm-hmm. owners club for the folks that fly those nice old airplanes, and apparently they're doing some work with the uh, Funk people, and for you know a, a lot of pilots out there, you know, putting Funk and aviation in the same phrase is is talking about the prospect of user fees. It puts you in a you know blue Funk or whatever. Well, what's but, Funk? Funk was a uh, uh, a line of uh, of uh, personal general aviation aircraft made by the Funk brothers. Believe it or not, you spelled with F U N K. Is that F U N K? Yeah, we need to clarify that. Yeah, yeah, we we, we need to be clear, as, as, you know, in case the audio drops out on me or or blows up or something like that. In Coffeyville, Kansas. And yeah. uh, Coffeyville, Kansas, was famous in Old West days for uh, uh, a holdup where the, uh, I believe, uh, one of the big outlaw gangs of the late 19th century uh, met a comeuppance. And uh, but Coffeyville was home to Funk, and Funk wasn't around for all that many years. And they're very prized, pretty little tailwheel, high wing airplanes, uh, kind of boxy. And uh, they're all going to be, you know, flying into, well, a whole bunch of them are going to be flying into uh, the Ohio Aronka Aviators fly-in in uh, mid-July. So, you know, if Oshkosh isn't on your uh, dance card, or even if it is, uh, and you're within a few hours of, uh, of Alliance, Ohio, this looks like it would be a nice little event to drop into to, to spend some time. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of interesting photos, images on the uh, on the website that we'll have a link to. Um, 
Uh, looks like a lot of fun, uh, especially if you're into tail draggers. Yeah, and you oh. don't have to be a tillercraft or an Aronco or a funk <laughs> oh, exactly. owner to uh, exactly. right check this out. Just, just an airplane nut, so. Right, being an airplane nut helps, uh, and if you got some potential airplane nuts that need to be nudged over into the nutty side, it uh, wouldn't be a bad, bad place to take them. Uh, but yeah, Jeb's right on the money. There's some nice shots here, uh, and personally, T Craft is one of my favorite of the old time, of the old timey uh, uh, golden era airplanes out there. Yeah. They were uh, cool. Yeah, it's some of the same uh, design lineage as uh, as the uh, uh, original Piper Cub, which was originally the Taylor Cub. And uh, uh, you check your history. Really, I didn't know there. that. Yeah, and uh, there's there's some commonality there. And uh, the uh, uh, the fact is that there's thousands of those old birds still out there flying around and for anybody that you know is interested in flying in this direction a lot of them meet the uh, uh, FAA standard for a light sport aircraft ah, yeah. even though they were factory made 50 and 60 years ago so uh, you know a person can legally operate them with a sport pilot's license uh, makes uh, make makes for a whole new level of attraction for some of these old birds like uh, take Taylor Craft and uh, Arancas and Air Coops and a bunch of others. So, just look like it'd be a fun place to drop into. It's it's kind of right at the right at the uh, uh, tight end jam up funnel for getting ready to go to Air Venture for mm-hmm. me. Otherwise, yeah. I'd try to swing over there. Yeah, um, maybe next year. Maybe July 11th through 13th at Alliance Harbor <coughs> Airport in Alliance, Ohio. The uh, website is uh, the it, the one we're looking at is the Ohio Aronka Aviators uh, fl- uh, fly-in site, which is oaafly-in.com, and, we'll and, put- and they have links to the other associations. To the websites of the other associations that are, are, are working together on, on this. So the T-Craft Foundation, the Ohio Chief Association, uh, the airport folks at Barber Aircraft Inc., uh, and some others. So check it out. Drop in. You know, expand your aviation horizons. That's right. That's right. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too early to point it's for this. Early now. In the <laughs> Sorry. Welcome. Excuse me, I need to change bags on my needle here. Welcome, yeah. folks. Welcome to episode number 86 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. We're recording this podcast on... Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a theme. We're recording this podcast on Sunday morning, June 15th, 2008. It's Father's Day. Father's Day, that's right. Uh, happy Happy Father's Day, Jeb and Dave. Uh, I, I'm, if, if it was an uncle's day, that would be my day, but I have no yeah, father's yeah. day. So, uh, well, happy uncle's day, Jack. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we yeah. can't leave you out. It's, uh, it's the, the reason we're laughing is that it's, it's 8 o'clock Eastern time, and, uh, and so it's 7 o'clock in Wichita and, uh, and other times elsewhere, but we'll come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Say hi to my friends here. That's uh, Jeb Burnside. Jeb's talking to us from Eastern Daylight Time, Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm fine, Jack. Good morning. And where it's plenty good. early enough as it is, but uh, oh, it's plenty early enough as it is. It's it's a Sunday morning, which is kind of sort of you know sleep in day, but uh, that's that's okay. We, we the show must go on, the and show uh, must go on. Yeah, um, we're and happy on, to and uh, on and hold up our end of the bargain here. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Should be a wonderful day in paradise. Yeah, what's your, uh, what you been up to? You been flying? No, um, actually, uh, the airplane is. Uh, let's see, one, two, f- uh, in about five different zip codes right now. Kind of, kind of doing some uh, overdue maintenance on a few things. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought maybe gear. it had abandoned you. No, no, landing gear rebuild, and I got exhaust. Uh, parts I need to send out and get redone, and just uh, um, so those pipes were exhausted. Those pipes were exhausted. That's yeah. Right. So, uh, uh, but basically going through a whole bunch of stuff while um, a buddy of mine's down and available, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. so I've been. Um, it, it, it's hot, it's warm, but there's always a breeze, and it's it's really not a bad. Uh, a uh, bad couple of weeks here to be uh, outside, you know, or at least in a hangar and whatnot, working on airplanes. So, uh, cool. uh, have, having a good time. Yeah. yeah. And also, there's Dave Higdon. Dave's joining us from Central Daylight Time, Wichita, Kansas. How you doing, Dave? Oh, so far, so far. Uh, got uh, you got you your know, intravenous coffee going there. Got right? my intravenous coffee going. Now we're working on a we're working on a contraption that'll just let it come straight out of the drip basket into the uh-huh. into the into the IV bag. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, we we need an intercooler first. So, uh, yep, it's uh, it's going to be a warm one here, and uh, it's been clear. We had a if we'd have done this on schedule. Thursday That's evening. Easy for you to say. Yes, it is at this time of day. If we'd have done this on schedule Thursday evening, it would have been a uh, 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 an interesting uh, uh, repeat from the prior Thursday evening, mm-hmm. except without right. the power outage. That's but you you had some you had some much near, more nearby tornadoes this time, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. Uh, EF one level stuff did minimal damage, as it turns out. Uh, but it had the, uh, the, the local super duper triple Doppler duper weather radar guys just pop a man going, yeah. you know, 90 words a second trying to fill in, uh, you know, okay, this is a rural area. So all you people that live in the little bitty towns that we don't know about out there, this is the time to go to your shelters. Uh-huh. And those of you that live in big areas, it's probably not going to hit you, but it'd be a good idea to go to your shelters too, because wow. you never know which way they're going to go. Yeah, the weather kind people of like, are like politicians. That. The weather people are like that. If you watch the Weather Channel, they're never more excited and just just pumped up than when there's like a hurricane or a, you know whatnot. And uh, yeah, and this was uh, this was really a pretty substantial storm, uh-huh. and uh, yeah. it could have uh, it could have very easily tipped over to the other direction. Uh, you know, my 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 uh, my my college education was not in meteorology, although I took a couple of classes in it uh, for filler. But uh, uh, thirty years of watching weather for aviation purposes and trying to stay abreast of you know how to read the new technology, mm-hmm. and I found myself going, man, that looks like a new hook echo developing over there west. And south of town, and gee, that one could come our way. And the weather guy would ignore it for about five minutes, and I'm starting to go, "What about the other one?" And finally, go, and we've started to get a little concerned about this hook echo over here. And I'm going, "Okay, I'm not an idiot." Sweep your house for bugs. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So it could have gone the other way. It had us kind of very attentive, and when the storm regenerated and 
passed through or, or, you know, made little swings through town two subsequent times overnight and never failed to wake me up with the uh, with the sound and light show. Oh, really? And, you know, and turn on the TV real quick and check the Insta Weather cable feed from one of the local stations, Doppler. And it's just, you know, running constant. And there's some guy in there talking, but I've got the sound off, so I can't hear him. And he's like zooming and panning and panning and zooming. And it's like, hold still. <laughs> That's right. Okay, I see. It's not coming my way. Back to sleep. Back, Back to, to sleep. sleep. So, but it's going to be lovely here today. Hot, sticky. We're going to head down to Dead Cow a little bit and say hello to some cool. friends this afternoon. Uh, it's also moved right squarely into mosquito repellent uh, yeah. days around yeah. here. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So, well, before I want to ask you one other question about the weather, but but let me before I forget, say I am Jack Hodgson, and uh, <laughs> normally I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, but I'm actually the cause of this odd uh, time of gathering in the hangar because oh, oh. because I am in uh, Pacific Daylight Time, Las Vegas, Nevada, for a uh, a big trade show that I'm working on, and uh, and and I'm working like these ten and twelve hour days out here, and and although we could have done it, you know, when we were when I was getting ready to come out here, I'm thinking, okay, well, I could probably break away around seven in the evening, and we. We could do this and because Las Vegas, like Las Vegas, is like Central or Mountain Time, isn't it? Oh no, it's not. It's Pacific. No, it's time. not. So when I get off work, it's already like ten or eleven o'clock out in the East Coast, and uh, that wasn't working. So we kind of went back and forth and decided to to make those guys get up sort of early, and I would pay the real price. So it's five. Well, it's right now it's quarter past five, and I'm looking out the window here. I'm my my uh, hotel room. I'm on I, just dumb luck. I don't know because I'm like the junior guy on this team, but on uh, dumb luck, I'm on the 34th floor, the top floor of the Mandalay wow. Bay Hotel. Um, unfortunately, I'm not facing the Las Vegas Strip. Uh, my window looks out to the uh, west, but I'm um, looking out across the valley and got the mountains in the distance and. Uh, Someone's got you pegged for be, to be in a high roller. Yeah, well, it's not that nice a room. It's just up high, and uh, but uh, yeah, it's getting light out here, and uh, pretty soon I'll see the sun uh, kind of peaking, you know, hitting the tops of the mountains off in the distance, and uh, and it'll be another day in Las Vegas. So uh, I appreciate you guys getting up early and uh, humoring me as I, uh, as, huh. I as I become a, oh, a world traveler here. Um, why do you get the bill? That's right. No, I don't get the bill. <laughs> the bill just goes. <laughs> It's the best of all worlds, um, David. The, the uh, we're in the national news is all full of uh, of stories about flooding in the northern well, part of the central I, I was, states. I was going to say something, um, and not to not to jump in on Dave. I, I'm I'm aware of Oshkosh, yeah, getting too much water, and there being localized flooding, uh, at least in the residential areas. Um, EAA is saying that the grounds at the airport remain, uh, I won't say high and dry, but remain uh, uh, unflooded. Uh, but the ground is saturated, and uh, this this is uh, you know obviously the upper Midwest, but other areas, uh, obviously Iowa, uh, uh, is is um, seeing a lot of, of flooding, localized and uh, more widespread, and uh, it's just one of those funky years. Yeah, well, it's not not yeah, it's it's yeah, climate change, man. Who knows what the heck it's going to be like? This Al Gore, please pick up the white courtesy yeah, phone nearest. Yeah, 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 okay. But so they, yeah, the ground is saturated. Although of course they've gotten good over the years of draining that field, so we've got still a month to go. And, oh yeah, uh, yeah it depends yeah. on what the weather continues to be like. If it oh, our, our, our real hearts go out to folks in places like Cedar Rapids. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's yeah. a couple of small fields near the river there. 
Uh, you know, we've looked, marveled at them uh, passing over uh, between Wichita and Oshkosh a number of times. Uh-huh. Uh, Des Moines is uh, uh, blessedly not as badly affected. So, David, uh, you live near the river there. I take it your river hasn't done anything unneighborly? Uh, we've uh, seen the river here go... Uh, go up and down like a political pole in primary season uh, <laughs> our our river is uh, our, our river has a uh, uh, flood drainage system attached up north that is called the uh, Wichita Valley flood control channel or something to that nature locally it's just called the big ditch uh-huh. and the big ditch runs about 27 or 28 miles uh, from uh, up in Valley Center, uh, near Valley Center, Kansas, about seven or eight miles north of my neighborhood. Uh, runs around the west side and parallels Midcontinent Airport over on the west side. Uh, and then runs all the way down uh, to past a uh, uh, little town, Hayesville, Kansas, uh, well to the south of us. And They've got this very clever siphon system set up. So when the two rivers here, the the Little River, the Little Arkansas, which is uh, on all three sides of my neighborhood, a block, a very small block north, a small block south, and two blocks, small blocks to the west, it does a big U right around our neighborhood. And the Big Arkansas. when they rise to a certain point, this siphon automatically carries the excess water uh-huh. out of the river and into the big ditch. Oh, that's cool. It's very cool. And without that, uh, my particular neighborhood and uh, much of downtown Wichita would have sometime this week been under several feet of water. Mm. Do you have flood insurance? Uh, we're not. We're technically not in a floodplain anymore That's because what they of that ditch. Me too. But we're looking into that anyway because yeah. the 1993 floods that so devastated parts of Missouri uh, and uh, along the uh, the Mississippi River, uh, you know, up into and toward uh, Minnesota, um, had the big ditch here filled to within a couple of feet of its top. Now that's about thirty feet, about a thirty foot rise in water, uh, wow. and, and it's uh, only about three eighths of a mile wide at the top. Uh, it's a very narrow channel at the bottom, and it's normally almost dry. Uh, so it not only filled up, it stayed filled up for days and days that summer, uh, and. Uh, the uh, excess water did a lot of damage to the uh, to the banks, to the yeah. artificial walls that were built up for this. Uh, and uh, a uh, engineer who had a hand in building it, very familiar with the structure and its route and its makeup and all that, an engineer was hired to do an assessment. He hired uh, someone to do uh, an aerial survey. They photographed the entire length of the ditch very early in the morning, so the low sun angle showed the scours and and uh, erosion very well and presented a big book to the city council and one of the city council members said oh that's nice pretty pictures but it doesn't really say that we need to worry about this any 
consequently, they've done what some of us would consider slapdash repair work over the 15 years since. And now we're seeing uh, it, it being used quite regularly. The water was up over there again over the week. And uh, if it breaches, depending on which side it breaches, there's a whole lot of developed uh, uh, civilization here that's going to be, you know, looking for a boat. So we're thinking Bring, about bringing, looking for that flood insurance again. Bringing it back to aviation, probably ought to go get you a seaplane. Well, that's a funny thing. There was a nice new one showed up in the world this week. Yeah, I saw that. Looks kind of interesting, although um, the website clearly is, is the, the images on their website um, clearly are more the product of Photoshop than uh, uh, coming straight out of the camera. kind of makes me wonder. I presume that they do have a flying example thereof. but uh, Well, they had a rollout with okay. the prototype in California okay. this past week. We're talking about a new amphib light sport aircraft called the Icon A5. Uh -huh. uh, it's got a very clever wing folding system. Uh, something that the developers call water wings that actually provide kind of a platform to help stabilize the hull in the water and give you something to stand on when you're uh, maneuvering for the dock. Uh, Rotax powered pusher carbon fiber Two plays side by side, canopy tilts forward. Uh, little on the little on the sexy side, little on the pricey side. Uh, a little on the heavy side too. Not much useful load, I don't think. Well, the uh, the the number that they quoted in in the release that came out with the rollout was the uh, full up, all options weight, uh, useful load. Uh -huh. And that's if you go for the optional electric drive system and locking systems, automatic locking systems for the folding wings. If you stick with the manual system, you leave some of that weight on the ground. Uh -huh. And the useful load ranges between 530 and 430. Mm -hmm. At the 430 end... It ain't great, but it could still accommodate fuel to people, and it's uh, 60 pounds of luggage. What kind of fascinated me was the uh, very automobile-like dash, not an instrument yeah. panel in the aircraft sense, but a dash with uh, little round nacelles for the airspeed and, uh, and, and tachometer, it looked like. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of anxious to see a... a see more of it at Oshkosh yeah. uh, because yeah. I want to know where things like uh, a VSI an altimeter and maybe even an attitude indicator might go Yeah, uh, they show it with a nice big uh, Honeywell uh, GPS multifunction display in the center of the panel uh, looks sexy and there are a number of these uh, really sharp you know Jeb and I walked around and looked at, a, at, at an amphib at uh, Sun and Fun that was less pricey and kind of in the same vein as this one. Forward tilting canopy, retractable gear, uh, kind of a sharp looking little airplane and uh, several thousand uh, uh, dollars less money. But yeah, the uh, amphibs have real appeal for us. <laughs> oh, they really do. They really do. And, and this is a sleek, sexy looking um, 
it's it's definitely innovative the cockpit especially uh, um it, it looks like something i've, I've got a, a two-seat bmw and it looks like something straight out of uh, out of that car yeah that's uh, a which, good call. which can be good or bad uh depending on your viewpoint but clearly they've they've spent some time um um engineering um various aspects of this aircraft uh the cockpit of course among them um but uh, yeah, it will be very interesting to get up up close and personal with this. And uh, yeah, the uh, people behind like. it have have some aviation chops. Uh, some yeah. of them come from scaled composites, where they worked on some of the programs with Burt Rutan. Uh, there's an F-16, uh, former F-16 driver involved in the development, and no less an aviation luminary than Mr. Rayburn, Vern Rayburn from Eclipse, yeah. uh, provided some of the uh, uh, commentary and, and, and uh, entertainment for the rollout out in well, he's a, Los Angeles. apparently a board member or investor or something also, yeah. so there's, yeah, a, there's involved. a financial connection between Rayburn and, and this company. So... Uh, it's something to check out. There'll be a link on there, and 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 I'll see if I can't dig out information, and maybe future uh, EPs will get a couple other Amphib links up there. But one of the neat things about the LSA is you, you can get an Amphib in here that will perform pretty close to a Republic CB mm-hmm. for a lot less money. Mm-hmm. And easier to maintain than a Republic CB. Oh, yeah, much. <laughs> But uh, no, it, it, it looks like a, an interesting air, aircraft, and that's one of the great things about the LSA. Um, I won't call it revolution, but the uh, the LSA phenomenon, if you will, is uh, you're starting to see a lot more innovation and a lot more uh, um, d- distinguishing uh, uh, features between aircraft, as as Dave and I have con- you know kind of referred to here today and and uh, in previous episodes. We spent a lot of time at Sun and Fun this year, traipsing around and and getting up close and personal uh, with some of these aircraft at the LSA Mall at uh, at Sun and Fun. And uh, uh, both of us, I think, were struck by um, the fit and finish of some of these aircraft, the the design differences. Some of them are just you know as sleek and sexy as you as as they want to be. Some of them are <clears throat> are very basic and utilitarian. Did and, we talk uh, about the X Air last week? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. No. Well, yeah. this is uh, you know in uh, in. Uh, in the vein did we, did, of, did, did we talk last week at all? I don't remember. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Who's on first? I don't know. Third base. Right. Uh, in the vein of, of trying to, to to always keep in mind that uh, a lot of us, myself included, don't have the uh, run out and buy $130,000 LSA. We try to keep a, a, a an eye towards of the uh, lower price stuff mm-hmm. and uh, in the last couple of weeks I think we may have talked about, about Chuck's Hawk uh, yes, we did talk 30, about that yeah yeah the $39,000 $39,900 LSA and then there's the X-Air which is a side by side LSA and kind of the same uh, performance range and construction range uh, although a little more sophisticated in some ways than Chuck's Hawk uh, for about $46,000 and uh, offers you a nice basic uh, airplane in in a, a brand new package ready to fly for that price. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, run about 90 miles an hour 
cruising down the highway. It uses the 85 horse. I believe we did talk about this, the 85 horse uh, Jabiru engine. Well, we, and, we talked about Chuck's the newest uh, offering. Okay. Uh, and, well, the X Air. We talked about the X Air. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't think we did. That was too, that was too okay. many brain cells ago, man. Yeah. But we'll have the link up on it. The X Air is a side by side tricycle high wing, uh, strut braced, uh, Dacron covered wing. Uh, uses the 85 horse four cylinder Jabiru uh, uh, aircraft engine. Uh, Really decent fuel burn out of that uh, for your 90 miles an hour. Uh, decent payload, 46,500 bucks. Uh, the entry price on this. Uh, not many opportunities to buy a brand new flying machine uh, in that price range, and we yeah. like to point them out where they happen. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. There you go. So the NTSB uh, came out with one of their <laughs> frequent reports. The NTSB, this is a, from a story in aeronews.net. Uh, NTSB recommends FAA look closely at pilot fatigue. The, I'll read the first paragraph. The safety board, uh, the National Transportation Safety Board made two recommendations Tuesday to the Federal Aviation Administration to address human fatigue within airline operations. The board recommended that the FAA develop guidance based on empirical and scientific evidence for operators to establish fatigue management systems, including information about content and implementation of the systems. I, I don't particularly, I, I put this on the list not so much to talk about whether or not the airlines have a fatigue problem, because they probably do, and obviously we have Hawaiian pilots falling asleep, you know, on short hops and that kind of thing, but um, my question is, you know, we, we joke from time to time about, you know, catnapping in the cockpit and, uh, you know, flying long legs and things like that, but all kidding aside, how dangerous is it to, you know, what's the limit, you know, after which you know, fatigue is one of the things that make you not go flying. Um, Where to uh, begin? Numeric limit. Uh, I, I, there, of course, legally, technically, there isn't a, a limit imposed on Part ninety one operations. Um, the uh, did GA the statistics have any any information about about you know incidents caused by fatigue? Occasionally, you will come across a probable cause finding that includes fatigue. Um, but um, there, there isn't um, uh, really a spike in in the uh, statistics. I'm not aware of, uh, and I'd have to go back with that question in mind, and you know, for example, look at some of the more recent uh, AOPA Air Safety Foundation NAL reports, which are kind of the the bible of uh, of GA uh, uh, safety and, and and GA accident sources, but. Um, Again, occasionally you will see the NTSB list fatigue uh, as as a factor in a uh, Part 91 accident, um, but it's very hard to define. Um, for one thing, GA Part 91 accidents perhaps aren't as as uh, deeply investigated mm -hmm. as um, um, commercial accidents might be, um, and we can we can talk about the validity of that observation uh, uh, on another podcast, but. Uh, um it is a good thing that we look at fatigue if we we look at uh, um, awareness of fatigue looking at this particular aero news network story it lists several accidents that the NTSB apparently I uh, looked at in, in greater detail and found that fatigue was a factor all of these accidents are part 121 operations 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and part 121 being? Part 121 being scheduled air carriers. Okay, thank you. So here we are talking on one hand about part 91, and the NTSB is talking about part 121. Uh is fatigue an issue in Part 21? I'm sorry, in Part 91? Absolutely it is. Damn straight. Uh, can, can, I, can I quantify it? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't tell you. Um, but I guess I come back around to um, the rules exist and the procedures exist and the institutional um, checks and balances exist even in Part 91 to not fly fatigue. And it's like, uh, you know, you're, you're, you self-certify basically, every time you go fly an airplane, even though you've got a current medical in your hip pocket, you still must um, consider uh, under the regulations whether or not you're fit to fly uh, the proposed mission. And um, that ain't changed. It's not going to change. It shouldn't change. Um, you need to verify. Well, you need to ask yourself, um, am, I, am I mentally, physically prepared to fly this trip this this hop it could be you know a 20 mile hop to the next airport it could be a a six hour hop across the country you still need to determine uh in both instances uh whether you're fit to fly um i have i have found myself um in in all three situations i found myself you know raring to go let's go no problem da 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 i have found myself no i'm sorry there's no way i can fly an airplane today i am not up to it and the third situation is, yeah, I gotta, I gotta get in the airplane. I gotta go somewhere, and I get in the airplane and I take off, and and I get about halfway there. I said, you know, this was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, um, I remember uh, sleeping in an FBO lounge in Charlotte, North Carolina, many, many, many years ago, um, um, just taking a break. Uh, from a trip uh, from Virginia to Georgia um, because I was, as it turned out, once I got to Georgia, I slept on a couch for about 20 hours, and it turned out I was coming down with something. Oh. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know it when I took off, and it didn't really manifest itself until I was already airborne, uh, and it was all I could do uh, to complete that, that flight. But, uh, you know, after 20 hours on the couch, I was okay. But uh, uh, Clint Eastwood said it best. A man has to know his limitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me th- or, or, and or a woman. Mm-hmm. Let me put a little something into the record here from uh, an acquaintance of mine, a gentleman named Mark Rosekind. He's a Ph.D. He's the president and chief scientist of a company called Alertness Solutions. And Dr. Rosekind has been a f- regular presenter for the last several years at the uh, Bombardier, FAA, NBAA, let's all say yay, uh, <laughs> air safety stand-down that's held here each fall in Wichita. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read directly from his 2007 presentation opener. Fatigue is acknowledged as a prominent safety issue in corporate flight operations. In a NASA study conducted in collaboration with the Flight Safety Foundation and the National Business Aviation Association, nine out of ten corporate pilots identified fatigue as a moderate or serious safety issue with a significant, catch this number, folks, 75% admitting to nodding off during a flight. Wow. Now, 
you know, before somebody, you know, jumps up and hollers at me that, you know, well, you know, y'all are not necessarily corporate pilots. Uh, we share a lot of the same operational uh, uh, environments with corporate pilots, whether we realize it is notwithstanding. Uh you take a long trip, you cross a couple of time zones, you cross one time zone, depending right. on which way you're going. Uh, you're uh, upsetting your normal rhythms. You uh, maybe get up real early, like Jack, for example, <laughs> yep. or Dave or Jeb on Sunday, uh, to uh, knock out a quick trip. You may not be as sharp as you would after a normal routine of sleep, wake up and go to work. Mm -hmm. uh, the backside of trips like this, where we see this in pilots top to bottom, side to side, don't give a rat's patoot what kind of equipment you're flying. If you're doing cross country and you're coming back, there's this uh, homesick angel express, as my bride used to call it where the itch to get back is just so overpowering. You're done with your vacation. You're done with your business. Uh, it's time to get up and get out. Now, usually we have this conversation more in relationship with pilots' uh, erroneous decisions to go nose-to-nose -nose with weather, weather yeah. that they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. But it's equally applicable to making the decision to go out in the airspace when you're – you know, nowhere near properly rested. Yeah, uh, that desire to sleep in your own bed that night can be very, very powerful. And, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Can be overpowering sometimes. Yeah. I mean, and, I've talked before about the one time that I almost ran out of gas, and uh, and it was absolutely attributable to the fact that we were just exhausted. And and uh, we, although we didn't fall asleep, um, we lost the ability to do simple arithmetic. We we were not calculating, uh, you know, the amount of flight time available properly. And uh, and just you know it it was bizarre because when we kind of woke up quote unquote and realized what we had done it was seemed like such a stupid simple mistake but when you get fatigued one of the things that goes early is the ability yeah. to do numbers for example and uh, Jack let me ask you a question about yeah. that and I I remember the discussion one one of the details I don't remember was the altitude at which you were flying. It wasn't very high. It was probably okay. five, six, seven, something like that. Um, that's high enough. That's that's high enough. I guess that's it is. High enough. I guess it is. Um, we we weren't weren't on oxygen. Maybe we, we had to be something like that because we were coming down from boy from Washington I am State to. So glad you said something about that. Yeah. Because yeah. there, right there, in the in the in the simplest terms possible, is not a cure, but uh -huh. a counter to uh, help you with fatigue, right. uh, and that's the O2 bottle. Exactly. Yep. You know, you're not at an altitude where it's required. You know, uh, screw what the far say. We're talking about human physiology here. Well, uh, you know, I, and I don't want to get off on a rant here, but in it, in it, we, we didn't sign on to make this the oxygen, um, uh, the supplemental oxygen uh, podcast, but I, let, let me make two points on, on supplemental oxygen. One, uh, when you think about it, uh, and you you go back and you start poking around, um, there is uh, sufficient evidence that leads me to conclude that this is correct. That when the FAA developed its its twelve five fourteen thousand and fifteen thousand oxygen rules, um, 
a lot of the the, the number crunching here, and the the FAA is arriving at those numbers for um, uh, requiring oxygen, based less on physiological need than operational expediency. Basically, at twelve five. Um, uh, a Part 91 operation can go from coast to coast um, through passes and, and, and along various routes um, across the United States without needing to use oxygen. That doesn't mean that it's safe and that the individual um, is um, uh, uh, breathing properly and, and his blood, his or her blood is, is properly oxygenated. Right. There's ample evidence out there, and, and, and I'm kind of living proof of that, that uh, supplemental oxygen is um, necessary, I won't say required, but necessary at substantially lower altitudes. And, and anybody More who so has an oxygen... Smaller. Yeah. Anybody who has um, a supplemental oxygen system, whether it be portable or built into their airplane, um, should go out and uh, um, do some do some uh, research on their own. Uh, they should have a uh, an oximeter, uh, one of these battery powered uh, uh, devices that senses the um, oxygenation of the blood by by literally shining a light on your finger and, and right. that's a little uh, gadget you put on your fingertip right a little, yeah. little a little gadget you put on your finger they're 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 relatively inexpensive um, and you should have one of those and, and keep it above ninety five ninety six at all times but the punchline here if I may is go out and and fly a couple hours at, at altitude and uh, um, do the, the the first hour without oxygen and then put the oxygen on flying at the same altitude. And if you're lucky, you'll you maybe even do some of this at night. And you will note, A, uh, if, especially if it's at night, you will note how much brighter uh, things seem uh, oh, when yeah. the oxygen is on. You will also note that you feel better when the oxygen is being used. So um, um, there, there is no reason that you shouldn't be using oxygen at lower altitudes other than cost, and I'll get to that in just a moment. Uh, and there is uh, uh, every benefit to be using supplemental oxygen at altitudes lower than the FAA requires. End of rant on, on the altitudes at which to use oxygen. Start of rant on, on there is no excuse not to have an oxygen system. And that is these days, and I, I did an article here a couple months ago for, for Aviation Consumer. Um, actually, I've done a couple of articles in the last six or eight months on, on oxygen systems for consumer. And uh, there's some really neat gear out there that makes um, using uh, oxygen a lot uh, more interesting and a, and a lot more convenient. But more importantly, a, a good two-person supplemental oxygen system these days is less expensive than topping off your tanks. Just, I'm serious. That's a good way I, to know, think. I know, I know. That's a good way to think about it, yeah. I thought you were going to like compare it to a handheld GPS or something no, like that. But, no, no. Uh, it, it it, oh, you can buy three or four. You can buy uh, an, a portable oxygen. And I'm starting to raise my voice here. You can buy a portable oxygen system for every seat in the house. For the same money that you're buying a portable GPS, okay, mm-hmm. um, yeah. there is no excuse based on the prices. And and I'll I'll put in a shameless plug for uh, a close friend of ours and, and, and mine personally and Dave's personally and, and probably Jack also, and that's Brent Blue, mm-hmm. who's who's the proprietor Aeromedics.com. 
Brent is a as a uh, medical doctor uh, by training and by profession, and a pilot and an all around nice guy. But he is also uh, uh, he actually started it with Mike Bush, who's been on the podcast before. Started Aeromedics.com several years ago, and um, one of their main product lines is portable oxygen systems. And I've, I've talked to Brent at length about. Um, um, some of his systems, and uh, he's got some really neat products. Uh, they are priced in such a fashion that uh, uh, you can't afford not to buy one, uh, whether it's from Brent, whether it's from Skyox or Aerox or, or Mountain High or, or some of the other companies out there. There is there even even if you get the most expensive system that any of these vendors have to offer, a you're still probably getting away uh, for less money than you would be spending buying a portable GPS. B um, it's a couple of tanks of gas at the greatest. It's less than a tank of gas uh, at at the um, uh, at the smallest end. And well, there is, it, I'm sorry, in this day and age, there is no excuse. Go out and do it. Call me. Call me with any questions. I'm sorry. Let's it, bring it, us back to fatigue here for a second. Yeah. If exactly. you find yourself hesitating when 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 control says contact such and such, and you reach for the knob and you go. Damn. What did he just? What did he just say? Yeah. Well, uh, not only what did he just say, but it's like, oh damn! I got I got to reach out. I got to put my arm up, and I got to put my arm I, out. What am I doing here? It out to the instrument panel. Uh, and, if uh, if you find yourself having to go back second, third times because you're uh, you know you're you're getting ready to plot a new course, or you looked at you're briefing a chart for uh, or, or an approach plate and. It's just not sticking. You may want to consider whether you're alert enough to be doing what you're doing. Exactly. Uh, disrupted sleep can be worse than no sleep, uh, according to Dr. Rosekind. Uh, when uh, you, you travel and you think you're getting enough sleep, but your sleep's punctuated by several wake-ups, uh, you really need to consider whether you're rested well enough to be flying that next mission. O2, O2, absolutely. A big help, a big boost to the brain, makes you more alert, makes you uh, think sharper. Uh, as Jeb noted, uh, boy, and this is what pushed me over the top, what it does to night vision and color acuity after dark is just nothing short of miraculous as far as I'm concerned. And that's why I use it anytime I'm flying at night, I, you know. 3,000, 5,000 feet, I don't care. Uh, that extra color acuity is necessary because what happens is the, the, the little mechanisms in your eyeball that sense color are more oxygen sensitive than the ones that sense contrast in black and white. So they hmm. suffer more from lower blood oxygen. Uh, that's why we're, we're hammering on the O2 thing yeah. here. But beyond the O2, it's a mental thing that you got to be alert for. And it's very deceptive. You feel like it. I've done this before. Uh, you know, it's not any different than getting up and going to class when I was in college. Well, yeah, unless your class moved around three axes, yes, it is different. <laughs> uh, it's not any different when I made those long-distance drives when I was younger. Yes, it is. Unless your driving moved about three axes, it is quite different. So, uh, you know, be smart, be rested, get there alive. Uh, you know, boy, a day late is a much smaller price to pay than on time dead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. 
Another subject we've talked about in the past um, is uh, perhaps the most notable example of this was the Brazilian midair uh, when the uh, U.S. pilots uh, were held down there for some period of time under the threat of criminal charges. Um, I mean, they actually did finally have criminal charges, but they got to come home. There's a story in the news uh, this past week about a pilot from, I'm sorry, I should know where Garuda is, Indonesia. Um, Prosecutors want... uh, uh, harshest sentence available. The pilot of a Garuda Indonesia Airlines Boeing 737 that crashed on landing in March may face life in prison if prosecutors have their way. I won't go into too much detail on this particular story, um, except to it makes me wonder whether we were pretty adamant back in the days of talking about the Brazil and some other incidents that 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 air that aviation crashes should not be criminalized because it, it doesn't aid the safety process and the a- analysis process and and so forth this story seems like a pretty clear example to me that the guy should be uh, uh, charged because he was just this was reckless and and negligent and borderline there was something wrong with his head um do you think this crosses the line where it's okay to criminalize uh, aviation accident situations Man, I'm so torn about this one. Here's what I think, and, 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 and I don't know anything more about this particular accident or incident than, than what's reported here on this uh, Aero News Network story. Um, this sounds like the guy has some severe emotional issues. Yeah. Let me just read yeah. a couple paragraphs here. Komar, the guy in question here, was captain of a 737 that overshot the runway and landing at Yogyakarta. Yogi, I'm sorry, I apologize. Yogi, Yogyakarta. There you go, airport in central Java. Uh, it slid into a rice field. The aircraft burst into flames, killing 21 people. 119 were able to escape. This was in March 7, 2007. Investigators later disclosed that Komar ignored repeated warnings, both from cockpit alarms and the flight's co-pilot, that the jet was coming in for landing much too fast. Cockpit recordings indicated the co-pilot had repeatedly called for the captain to abort the landing and go around. Uh, police arrested the uh, Komar in February. I mean, there are things like uh, it, apparently the the re- cockpit reporter f- he was singing during the uh-huh. approach. Um, he was, you know, and it says, which was not in accordance with the Garuda's basic op- operations manual. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, your op specs says coming only. Yeah. Yes, right. That's um, right. The, you know, uh, this was just outrageous. Well, yeah. it is, and 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 I guess my point is, anybody who's gotten to the point of being able to and, and certificated to ride left seat in a seven thirty seven has had uh, a lot of training and a lot of regimentation, and and knows should at least know what he or she is doing. That's why I find that his behavior is so far away from the norm for airline pilots that I'm convinced that something else was going on. Uh, I think he needs, you know, uh, a workup, uh, maybe some help, and and I, I, I kind of wonder what his uh, situation was. I, I don't think um, that his behavior on this landing um, uh, was without some, uh, you know, if, he, if, if the guy was drunk, then lock him up. If he's on drugs, lock him up. Um, but I kind of wonder if there's not some other mental or physiological problem that resulted in this kind of behavior um, that would be a mitigating factor. It's beyond my comprehension that um, an Air, uh, a 737 pilot, and Garuda's not, 
the, some fly-by-night coconut oil in no, the no, engine's uh, operation. Long carrier with a yeah. great history. Uh, so they've they've got uh, uh, a lot of checks and balances. I, I can't believe that they let a bad one squeak through here. So uh, I, I think that there's more going on here than simple incompetence or um, uh, negligence on this pilot's part. Mm-hmm. Well, my. my you know, there's, there's, if you, if you go to a criminology class, you know, they'll tell you that there's, there's uh, uh, two philosophies behind incarceration, and uh, one is punishment or revenge, society's way of saying we don't like what you did, and the other is rehabilitation, uh, which, when you can get society behind it, is what happens to prisoners to help make sure they don't come back a second time. Uh, Looking at the scenario here, it's hard for me to see validity to either of those philosophies in prosecuting this guy. Yeah. First off, his career's done. Yeah, okay, he's not going to come back and do this. Second, we don't need to be sending a message to aviators that you don't want to do this because any sane aviator is already operating under that philosophy. I don't want to do that. Nobody... You know, uh, it always stunned me to sit in the back of a human mailing tube with, with some civilian that's uh, uh, a frequent flyer and say, oh, well, you know, the pilots, they don't care about us back here. They just care about keeping on the schedules. And I'm kind of like, you know, in a great majority of instances, the pilot and the co-pilot are the very first to the scene of the crash. So, yeah, I do think they care about getting there alive and intact. And, yeah, you know, there's some pressure there to get it done. But uh, nobody wants – nobody was going to do this. This isn't going to incentivize incentivize safety. Nobody is going to jump up and say, wow, there's a risk of me getting prosecuted if I crash. I probably shouldn't crash. We already well, operate that way. So so much in in what little experience uh, has been imparted to me by some friends of mine who who fly um, scheduled operations. These days, there is so much uh, uh, over the shoulder looking at their op- at their uh, behavior by both the FAA and the airline. They're more afraid of losing their job than they are scratching the airplane. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Dying dying's an easier option. You know, yeah. in, in some ways, than uh, than uh, having to face the chief pilot on Monday morning and explain why you had to do that go around that cost the carrier two thousand dollars in additional fuel and made the, the the flight late so that X Y number of passengers missed a connection, which cost the airline umpteen dollars to put them up overnight and on and on and on. Uh, I just don't I I don't believe that even in this instance criminalizing this guy's situation has any benefit except to satisfy the revenge feeling that is so much part a part of human nature well but yeah. revenge puts it in a much in, in a pretty negative light i mean there's something to be said for punishing people who do foolish things that kill people yeah but i got to go back with jeb here and there's even a quote here uh, uh from the from the report to the accident the pilot was probably emotionally aroused because his conscious awareness moved from the relaxed singing mode to the heightened stressfulness of the desire to reach the runway. Uh, I think that, the, uh, prob- the, the, like Jeb, I think the pilot was probably emotionally disturbed in some other way yeah. uh, 
that let him blast on through repeated warnings, cautions, and uh, the uh, conflicting opinion of his first officer. That does well, not sound know, like the performance well, but, of somebody okay. that's and, operating normally. And I'm largely playing the devil's advocate here, but let me just say this. That's cool. Let me say this, that at least here in the United States, the criminal justice system has mechanisms for taking you know, uh, emotional and, and psychological problems into account. Shouldn't, shouldn't we let and the criminal justice system sort this out? We, we should, we should probably, I don't know about the criminal justice system, um, but we should certainly... Um, bef- and I don't know anything about uh, the law in Java and, and, and how it would apply in this instance and, and uh, what mechanisms exist for, for looking at this, this individual's uh, um, mental and physical, emotional uh, uh, stability and, and health. Um, clearly, I think that that should be part of, of uh, whatever happens in this investigation. They should look at his history and 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 look at uh, um, exactly what happened here and what may perhaps some of the the reasons it happened. Um, and and I'm going to be uh, you know maybe we should stick a fork in this and move on. But I guess one of the questions I'd like to know answered like to have answered is what was he singing? I mean, was he singing Iron Butterfly, show tunes, Springsteen, uh, Wagner? <laughs> what was he singing? Okay. <laughs> well, and, and I gotta I gotta agree with this thing that happened happened in Brazil between the yeah. uh, legacy and the uh, uh, Go Airline 737. Uh, tragic. Tragic. Very and, tragic. And, and, and this is just as equally tragic. And, this is equally I mean, tragic. That one has all sorts of signs of a systemic screw-up with mm-hmm. Brazilian ATC. Uh, this one has the signs of a disturbed aviator. Uh, criminalizing does nothing to advance the cause of improving the safety in either instance and does create a precedent here where, you know, when we're looking to get even, which is our human nature, somebody needs to pay. Law firms are making great hay off this. Make them pay. Prosecutors, that's their job to make them pay. Uh, This does not bode well for the integrity of aviation safety investigations if we're if if we're in a position where a prosecutor can show up minutes after an accident and say we have pre- reasons to believe that there was a criminal act here done that we're going to be prosecuting and usurp control over the accident investigations operation and scene mm-hmm. we saw this tragically uh in the uh, TWA 800 explosion off Long Island where it just had to be a terrorist act. It wasn't conceivable that it could have been any kind of accident to do that. Uh, And the FBI swooped in and started grabbing stuff out of the water and putting to work people to get stuff out of the water. And by the time it was clear that it wasn't a hostile act, the investigation had suffered hugely, and the NTSB was months longer trying to get things back in order uh, because their usual process had just been so rendered 
you know, it was just tossed out the window when the FBI showed up here. Right. Uh, so that's my paranoia, is that, you know, with nothing more than maybe a phone call, wow, maybe that pilot was on drugs. Oh, we have somebody that said maybe the pilot of that crashed airplane was on drugs. We now have a criminal investigation. Uh, NTSB, we'll let you know what we find out. And then we find out that, well, yeah, he was taking a script that was approved by the FAA. It had nothing to do with the accident. And, oh, what caused the accident? Well, we don't know because the NTSB is trying to still undo the damage done by the criminal prosecutors in trashing through the evidence looking for signs of criminal act. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. We should probably move on here. Unless you want to, anybody want to finish this off? The only other thing I would add uh, is more generic. I, I'm always um, – fascinated uh, on one level and uh, amused on another level um, we see video and we see we hear stories on uh, news news reports about GA aircraft for example landing off airport and we, we've talked about a lot of them on on the uh, on various episodes um, invariably local law enforcement uh, in the news stories are quoted as investigating the um, the off airport landing of the week or something like that, and uh, it's always of of uh, increasing interest to me that local law enforcement gets involved when somebody lands an airplane um, on a highway or you know I can see them you know stopping traffic and making sure that everything's safe and there's no fuel spillage and all that kind of thing, um, but that presuming that the guy's not staggering drunk. Um, uh, that I think pretty much uh, uh, eliminate is is the extent of their their uh, their purview. If the guy if, if the airplane is is landed on on private property or or something like that, uh, and as long as the, the landowner doesn't care, um, law enforcement really has no no problem. It's like pulling over to the side of the road in your car, and uh, you know, not coincidentally, I had a little car issue yesterday. And, um, you know, law enforcement wasn't involved, and, and uh, uh, the car's fine, no sheet metal's bent or anything like that. Um, it, it, just, it just strikes me as just increasingly humorous that law enforcement has to get involved every time that there's some, uh, some hiccup with an airplane. Yeah, well, and, we have uh, a, we we are living under the perpetually heightened level of security. Right. Uh, began almost seven years ago. And, uh, you know, it, 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 now every time there's an airplane incident, I, I, I wait for the breathless television reporter from my witless news to mm-hmm. tell me authorities do not suspect terrorism. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, nor, and, and, nor should they. Uh, nor should they. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. All right. Moving on. What's next? So uh, more news from Eclipse. What's going on? They, uh, uh, they had a bad break. Is this a yeah. is this a big story or is this uh, what's going on? It is for Eclipse. <laughs> what, uh, one of you, one of you, summarize this for us. Tell 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 us what's going on here. Well, they... let me. There's, there's there's two or three things going on here from where I sit. One is the actual event in question. Um, there was a a Cirrus. Uh, Eclipse, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Eclipse 500. Excuse thank me. You. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know where I got the Cirrus thing. Uh, there was Eclipse 500 that was um, going into Chicago Midway. Uh, this was uh, a week to ten days or so ago. Um, 
and um, there was it was a windy, gusty day, wind shear, uh, whatever. Uh, and during the uh, approach to the runway at, at um, uh, Midway, the pilot had reason to quickly um, um, push the throttles full forward to try to get more thrust out of the engines. Um, in doing so, something, some some software or some mechanical issue acro- uh, cropped up, and both engines uh, went to full power and could not be modulated. Because uh, uh, he, he wanted them to go to full power. He wanted, he wanted, he wanted well, the power. Initially, to, but then but when it came to time to, to throttle back, it wasn't happening. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, all right. Yeah, go ahead. Pull the throttles back to, to moderate the power. Nothing happened. The, the engines were literally stuck at full power. Um, the crew managed the situation. I'll, I'll say crew. I don't know if it was a single pilot operation or, or two pilot operation. Um, they they got the flaps and the gear and everything configured and still could not slow down the airplane, much less uh, keep it under con- uh, much less land it. They they did keep it under control. Um, they ended up shutting down one engine. Um, the logic in the engine control. Uh, software um, decided that that meant the other engine should go to flight idle. So they go from (laughs) (coughs) they go from basically uncontrolled full power on both engines Uh, they shut one down and then the other one immediately goes to flight idle and they've gone from full power to, to basically enough to keep the lights on. Um, it sounds like a big deal to me. It, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, the uh, The flight landed safely. Uh, they, I think they blew the tires um, on landing, and I, I don't know the story behind that. I don't know where they landed. And I'll get to all of the don't knows here in just a moment. Um, the NTSB, um, in, in investigating this episode, made a recommendation to the FAA that they say, hey, guys, you know, <laughs> there might be a small issue here with, with the Eclipse engine control units, and I'm, I'm using engine control unit in a lowercase because I don't know what these, these uh, uh, systems and, and devices are, are technically referred to as. But, um, uh, and sure enough, later that day, uh, the FAA put out um, an emergency airworthiness directive uh, directed at the uh, Eclipse 500 fleet, uh, requiring a functional check of the uh, aircraft before they were flown again. Um, now, for those uh, of us who may not be quite as familiar, what's the difference between an emergency AD and a, and a non-emergency AD? Uh, well, a, a non-emergency AD, or airworthiness directive, is one that goes through what I would call the normal, and I put the word in quotes, rulemaking process, where there is a proposal, there are comments received, the FAA decides what to do based on those comments from the public. In this case, um, the FAA, by labeling this an emergency AD, circumstances convince that that public notification and in comment period uh, and goes directly to uh, a proposed fix um, in the interest of safety down the road they will come back and revisit um, the uh, uh, specifics of the emergency ad but there's no question that the ad applies in mm-hmm. the meantime 
Uh, so that's that's the the rough answer to the question, okay. uh, Jack. So we're on uh, with this eclipse thing. Yeah. It goes well, on a little farther here. It, it does. Go ahead, Dave. Take it away. They, they, they put a replacement throttle quadrant in the aircraft that suffered the, the throttle control mechanism failure. Before this and, happened? No. Afterwards. This is subsequent. Okay. And yeah. they, put, they put in a replacement throttle quadrant. And a subsequent test of the replacement throttle quadrant, according to uh, uh, different articles, caused a right engine control fail message to appear on the crew alerting system display. Now, I, I'm you know I'm not an engineer. I don't play one on TV. But uh, first, we have a mechanical failure here. The pilot advances the throttles to the stops. And returning them from the stops does, uh, you know, they're, they're not responding. Uh, so something went haywire there. It sounds like between the throttles and the, uh, the linkage and the uh, FADEC systems on those little Pratt and Whitney engines. Uh, then you have the engine that crews, you know, understandable decision. We need less thrust to land. So we're going to, you know, cut our thrust by half by cut, shutting off an engine. For a software, uh, uh, a software decision to then roll the other engine back to flight idle and put it in, and it's still out of the control of the flight crew, uh, says to me that there's more than a mechanical issue here, and there's more than a FADEC issue here. Uh, that there's also some uh, 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 issues with the software that's in the uh, uh, flight management and engine monitoring system. Uh, and then when you put a replacement in and you get a right engine control fail message, uh, this is more than just a, uh, oh, we need a functional check of the throttles to get them back into the air. Okay, if that's all the FAA says is required to clear them back onto flight and a change in the operations handbook, the airplane flight manual, POH, says don't overstress the throttles when you're going to full thrust. Okay, that's cool too. Uh, maybe it also needs some language there that tells you what you should and shouldn't do in the event that this happens again. And how about taking a look at some of that software code that, yeah. and, the, and the logic behind it that uh, causes these guys to almost lose the second engine by shutting down the first one. Yeah. Well, it, it, here's, here's one of my thoughts. You know, If I'm in any airplane, whether it's an Eclipse or my, my Debonair or, or something else, and I need full power... Uh, I'm going to bend the throttle uh-huh. <laughs> over the front of the nose yeah. if I need full throttle. If that sucker's going to the firewall and it's going to stay there until I get what I need. I, I, I would hate to see uh, any aircraft and any um, uh, manufacturer and any pilot flying same aircraft get into a situation where we have to be a little gentle in throttle yeah, application, that, or the engines will quit, or they will go to full throttle, and you can't back them down, or something like that. I mean, there there are. Um, um, I'm I'm told. Let me put it that way. Um, that various um, airframe and engine combinations over the years have required um, uh, a little bit more thought. To going into full throttle application from idle, for example, you know you don't want to get a uh, um, uh, some radial engines. You don't want to just uh, be very ham fisted with in, in right. applying full throttle to some turbine engines, uh, especially older designs, require um, some thought and some planning because they need some time. 
to spool up from a flight idle or approach power situation to a full throttle uh, command. You know, sometimes as much as 8 to 10 seconds can elapse between the application of the throttle and the actual engine responding. So I I would hate, and I'm sure Eclipse feels this way too, I would very much hate for them to get into a situation where um, uh, pilots have to modify their behavior based on their uh, being accustomed to modern engines and modern technology on how to operate those engines. This will get resolved. Uh, there's, there's some software people who are, I'm sure, are going through the, uh, the jolt and uh, um, staying up late at night trying to, trying to noodle this one out. Well, when, uh, Mark this will get Rosenker, when Mark Rosenker, the, the chairman at the NTSB, I've met the gentleman. He's very sharp. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he says that uh, you know the, the board is going to continue its investigations, obviously there's these other issues to look uh, to to examine beyond the mechanics of the the throttle quadrant failure right. here. Then uh, I'm certain that uh, we can all be fairly certain this is not the last <laughs> that we'll have heard of this. Yeah, well, no, it's not. I mean, here's my question. Uh, you know, Go ahead. is. Uh, and, and and like you guys, uh, I am uh, su- very supportive of Eclipse and and this new in- industry sec- industry segment that they're trying to uh, pioneer. But how many of these kinds of things can Eclipse take before something? I don't know. You know, well, this, this is this, this is this is an incredibly. You know, this company's just been one thing after another, and I, and I don't mean to point a finger. I'm sure these are just you know these you know stuff happens. But but this company is just kind of must be reeling. Well, a couple of thoughts. One, this is the first operational issue that yeah. has been associated with the Eclipse 500, of which I'm aware. Um, there's about there's 200 of the airplanes out there now. Yeah, there's, so. there's more than 200 now. I think it's 207. Um, um, there was, a, I think, a New York Times article earlier this week that said that they're pumping out uh, less than one a day, but somewhere close to one a day. So maybe, let's call it three a week, two or three a week, which is is not bad. Um, so there's 207 apparently on the on the U.S. Uh, registration or, or have, have left the factory, whether they're U.S. registered or not. Um, every, every new airplane has some teething pains. The, yep. the Cirrus had some teething pains. Yep. Um, the the uh, ailerons uh, were known, uh, at least in some of the early uh, designs in the uh, the SR20, were known to to bind up occasionally. And, and uh, uh, we saw uh, one of their test pilots lose his life uh, um, as a result of that kind of an issue. We saw another Cirrus. Um, the uh, after some maintenance, the pilot ended up. Uh, pulling the parachute because he couldn't control the airplane because one of the ailerons departed the airframe. Uh, that might be more of a, a, a maintenance issue than that a design and engineering. Yeah. yeah, but but the punchline is that that um, all of these aircraft, all new aircraft, have teething pains. Nothing's yeah. uh, nothing's uh, um, perfect the first time out. Um, here. here I don't. I don't mean to minimize your concern, Jack, but uh, from an operational standpoint, um, I think the jury's way uh, far still out on on the the value of the Eclipse. Yes, Eclipse as a company has had some issues over over the time over the years, uh, and they're not out of the woods yet, whether financially. 
uh, whether from an engineering standpoint, there's there's a lot of things in the aircraft in the in the panel that a uh, either don't work as well as they should, b are not integrated, or c simply cannot be used in flight. Uh, and I, I presume that you know fixes are underway for all of that. Um, this is is kind of sort of related. Uh, in that it's a yeah okay it's a software engineering issue or it's a it's a hardware issue or something like that, but um, it's kind of sort of not related in that it is operational and it is something that was discovered um, by placing these products in the field and letting people use and abuse them. Um, all aircraft have, uh, in all systems, uh, uh, have these kinds of uh, uh, learning curves. Even even iPhones and, and uh, you know uh, computers generally. So, in and of itself, that doesn't give me pause. But here, to bring this discussion full circle, here's what kind of does give me pause. And I I checked around a little bit this morning. If you go to the FAA's website, and you go to the NTSB's website. There is no reference on either of their on any on any of their databases to this particular incident. Um, there's nothing in the NTSB database on an eclipse uh, earlier this month um, uh, at Midway. There's nothing uh, in the FAA accident incident database, uh, which is a completely separate uh, kind of thing. Well, those, that, those, that those things at, take about. A week to ten days to two weeks to get caught up. They they do, but there still isn't you know anything available from those uh, agencies on the specifics of this particular event. Yeah. Uh, the in number, the time of day, how many people, what was the weather, you know, this kind of stuff isn't right now available. Te- and, technically, uh, it doesn't even qualify as a reportable incident. Well, I'm not sure about that because uh, well, if you, if you yeah, go back the engine thing, yeah, the, the engine, engine thing. control unit kind of thing, I think yeah. it does, and um, um, I'm yeah, not I was sure also in terms if of lack of damage, but you're right. right. Well, they they blew. Uh, I think they blew a tire or both tires or something on landing, uh, and depending on the damage that might have occurred from that event, um, which is kind of the, my point. Okay, we don't know because there's not enough public information right, right. out there to to decide why this has come to the NTSB's attention. Stay tuned; there'll be more. Uh, you know, to, this this is going to come back around. Have no doubt. Yeah. Yep. Watch this space. Watch this space. Okay. So uh, yeah. Uh, let's see now. We're kind of reaching the end of our allotted time here. I'm going to I'm going to fl- flip over a couple of these cards here quickly. David, what's the story? Well, who did AOPA hire? Ah. Wake up, Dave. Because you, you, you did it again. You gave us a little hint here. You said AOPA hires former DHS staff such a tease. and pilot for a new post. And then you didn't tell us who or give well, us a link. I couldn't, get the, I couldn't get the link to work Okay, I posted that. Names. So, we need uh, names, David. And there wasn't space in the uh, little thing there on our discussion list. So what I did was I thought I saved the email. And I'm looking that up right now. <laughs> so we We'll have a name for you. It's really early um, Sunday morning. While he's looking for that, let me uh, kind of do a couple of administrative here we things. Go. A reminder that uh, we're headed to Oshkosh soon, and uh, Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast will be very present there. Uh, we're going to record two episodes of the podcast while we're in uh, in Oshkosh. One on 
Uh oh, um, on the first day of the show, what's that? Monday uh, at uh, in the afternoon, right after the Daily Air show, and then one on Sunday morning, probably around ten-ish in the morning. Um, these shows will, in according to be, in addition to being recorded and posted on our regular feed, they will be broadcast live on EAA Radio there in uh, in Oshkosh, and they will also be streamed live on the internet uh, through the uh, uh, the uh, probably the AirVenture.org site. And, we'll have more and, on that later on. And 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 that. That that fellow flyers is where doing uncontrolled airspace gets to be its most terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> live, A, live. A, we're in public. B, we're live on a radio station. C, they're streaming us out on the World Wide Web. So, uh, you know, you folks could, if if you've, you know, if you're that abusive of yourselves, actually catch us live on the internet. Those uh, those two particular podcasts by dialing up through uh, dialing into the EAA website and following the links. That's right. Uh, really scary stuff. <laughs> that's, that's hardcore. We will also be participating in uh, in uh, the second edition of Podcastapalooza, the gathering of the aviation <laughs> podcasters. Um, that will be on uh, Friday afternoon uh, in t- towards the end of the week, uh, Friday afternoon, uh, Roughly speaking, after the Daily Air Show, it will be in one of the forum buildings, so there'll be a lot of chairs and places for people to sit down. Uh, there's going to be quite a gathering of uh, of various uh, aviation podcasters there. Um, the the sort of all the usual suspects, ourselves and Steve Tupper and uh, uh, and Jason Miller and and Will Hawkins probably is going to try and make it out there, and uh, and then a number of others as well. So it should be fun. To, uh, those of you who listen to a lot of different aviation podcasts, or if you're looking to be introduced to some new ones that you hadn't heard about. Um, try and be uh, in Oshkosh on Friday afternoon and come by. It'll be listed. We'll, we'll talk more about the specific location and so forth. And, and I there, think there, it'll be there listed. There will be in chairs, the, so there'll be a place right. to sit. Yeah. Um, you yeah. have to bring your own fruits and vegetables. That's right. And we hope yes. anybody, any of our listeners who is going to be at uh, at Oshkosh and perhaps unable to uh, attend any of these three things, we would love you to have us look us up and uh, say hi. Uh, you can usually find, uh, well, at least this year, Dave and I, through the uh, Air Venture Today office uh, and and, uh, and and we'll we'll direct you to Jeb wherever he's hanging yeah. out. But uh, I, I will probably be working out of the Avweb uh, headquarters, which okay. uh, will be near the press building. But uh, so seek us uh, out. We really do love yeah. it. It's not a bother at all. We'd love. Let, to hear let me from you. let me also say something here, um, if I could, about some of this, Jack. Yep. Go um, ahead. Because my gig has changed here over the last year, and in previous years I've been working for EAA, just as, as Jack and Dave are this year, uh, on the AirVenture Today newspaper, uh, I'm not going to be doing that this year. And In fact, um, exactly whom I'll be working for and, and what I'll be doing is remains a little bit up in the air. Um, because of that, I've got a lot more flexibility. Um, and um, that flexibility includes uh, something that I've been trying to do for, uh, um, well, eight years now. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the exact whys and wherefores, but uh, um, the, the, while we'd like to think that, uh, um, and in fact, this is true, that while Oshkosh is going on, there really isn't anything else going on in the world. Yeah, there is kind of a few other things going on in the world. Um, and some of the times we have to kind of take opportunities where we find them. The punchline in all of this is that I may not physically be at Podcast Palooza, and I may not physically be with uh, my good friends Dave and Jack uh, for that final um, podcast in uh, at Oshkosh this year. Um, I'm 
looking forward to trying to figure out a way that uh, I can be there electronically. Yeah, we're definitely going to try and figure out a way for the second episode. We're we're thinking about a cardboard cutout with a voice Uh box and Uh sunglasses. (laughs) Uh With a couple of, uh, you know, uh, darts thrown at it and and, and this kind of thing. But But suffice to say that you would rather go flying than hang out with us. Oh, my goodness. We will have a debut of a game called Pandy and Panage on the Burnside. I don't want to jinx it by talking about it in advance. So oh, okay, I, I, all right. I, I do want to try to lay the groundwork here that I don't want anybody surprised, and I especially am concerned that uh, uh, some people might get their nose out of joint that you know Jeb doesn't want to participate or something like that. That's not the the problem or the question or the issue or anything else. Uh, if if um, uh, things work out, I will be at Podcast Palooza, and I will I will be uh, um, present for the the final. Uh, a recording session of, of uncontrolled airspace. Yeah. He doesn't love us but, that's right. No, 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 no. All no, kidding aside, I, we know. I don't want it to be a surprise, and I don't want anybody to be yeah. shocked or anything like no, that. No. But uh, the jury's still out on exactly where I'll be and what I'll be per- doing. Personally, Hopefully, I'm looking forward to it. It means extra beer for the rest of us. So. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we're all going to be at Oshkosh. Uh, we're going to have fun. Some combination of the gang, including uh, James and Amy and others, uh, will be uh, on the podcast and on the podcast. Check it out. Uh, come by and visit us. Say hi. We were want to do that. The other thing that's interesting about Oshkosh this summer um, is that this is just an amazing story, and I don't want to, we could talk for a long time about this, but we did mention last week that, uh, uh, and in a couple other episodes, that EAA is doing this affordable flight center, this program to uh, to help people find ways to learn how to fly and fly uh, more inexpensively. And uh, we, or more specifically Dave, has been invited. Dave, so Dave's uh, riffing on uh, inexpensive, inexpensive airplanes that are out there um, so inspired our friends at EAA that they have invited him, uh, and all of us indirectly, but mostly Dave, to be a speaker uh, at the Affordable Flight Center this year. And uh, I know you're working out the details of exactly when that's going to be, but uh, that'll be cool. Um, I, we're very, very excited to be, at least I think we are, I know I am, to be part of this Affordable Flight Center because I think it's an awesome program. Uh, and it's it's a great idea. We're flattered and humbled beyond belief uh, to to learn that we were even a, a, a tiny part of the inspiration for uh, establishing the Affordable Flight Center, and uh, you know uh, really wondered what they were drinking or, or or eating the day that they decided to invite me as one of the speakers. Yeah. Uh, but my my thanks to uh, Charlie Becker and Ron Wagner that are coordinating this. We will have a little bit more on uh, a, a time, day uh, information as we get closer. That's right. That's right. Uh, but- we're, we're still about six weeks out, or a little under six weeks out here. That's right. So but, check uh, out the... Yeah, uh- we, 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 we said yes uh, since you asked, and uh, we'll be there, and I have to you know, shake some things up with my boss, Rick Reynolds, and uh, make sure that, uh, you know, everything's covered for the hour that I'll be doing this, but... Like, he won't be seeing that coming. Yeah. So, check out... You definitely want to check out the Affordable Flight Center when you're at Oshkosh this summer, and then the the day and the afternoon or whatever that Dave is speaking, that may either make you want to be there or want to avoid it that day. You be the judge. It's up to you, and and we can see it going both ways. That's right. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Absolutely. (laughs) David, did you find that uh, AOPA name? I did. I did. I've been looking at at it, uh, uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, uh, you know, as you've heard us uh, intone about on, on a number of occasions, is uh, 
really quite good at representing our interests. That's why about 417,000 of us belong to AOPA, myself included. I'm sorry, 415,000. I don't want to blow the smoke up their uh, wingtips. Uh, and one of those jobs, uh, more difficult jobs, more uh, 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 stressing jobs over the last almost seven years has been dealing with security issues and that were generated by the air attacks of hijacked airliners on September 11, 2001. Uh, you know, a lot of people inside the Beltway thought that at the time, and some I'm sure still do, thought that for the safety of the country, it's best if we just ground all those little general aviation aircraft because, after all, we know they don't really contribute anything to society or the uh, the world good, which you and I and all the aviators out there know is just so much you know BS from people that don't know anything. So AOPA spent a lot of time and effort dealing with the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Transportation Security Administration. Uh, this past week, they announced that they have hired a gentleman named Craig Spence to fill the newly created position of Vice President of Aviation Security at AOPA. Uh, Spence is a longtime GA pilot who has spent most of his career in airport and aviation security, so he's got a background. Uh, he's worked uh, in aviation security at large uh, commercial airports. Uh, he's a high-time pilot, commercial, instrument-rated. He's a uh, United States Air Force Reserve colonel. Uh, he has more than 2,500 military flight hours in large turbine-powered multi-engine aircraft, and he's been an AOPA member for a long, long time. He's wearing one of those pins that uh, uh, says, uh, you know, I've been a member 10 or 15 or 20 years. I couldn't make it out in the photograph. So uh, uh, one of those really simple ideas where you kind of slap yourself on the forehead and go, duh, why didn't we think of that sooner? Mm -hmm. Because AOPA has long had officials to oversee uh, uh, just about every other aspect of our aviation encounters with our federal government and people that do the same thing on the state and local level. Uh, and, you know, long time coming to this idea. Great idea. Uh, hats off to Mr. Spence. Welcome to the fray. Uh, I say that as if he's just signed up, but he's actually been a part of it for a long time. Uh, hats off to Phil Boyer and his staff there and whoever came up with the idea of maybe we should create a position for this because Lordy, we're doing it all the time now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. That sounds good. We'll be, uh, you know, I mean, AOP has been doing some awesome work in trying to, uh, you know, represent us and trying to keep these things a little bit under control. So, uh, so it sounds like a good step forward. Well, he said he's been an AOPA member since the, uh, the 1980s. And he got his first GA flight when his father took him up when he was one year old. So uh, definitely the guy's got the roots. Uh, professionally, sounds like he's got the chops. Uh, we just hope that uh, somehow that translates into the message penetrating the impenetrable, hermetically sealed against reality section of TSA. This be a, a son or a relative of Charlie Spence, would it? I have no idea. That's that's uh, occurred to me, and I've meant to uh, put a message to Chris Dancy at AOPA to ask about that. Uh, 
I knew Charlie. Uh, Charlie was my boss there many years ago. Worked with him. A great guy. Uh, know he has children, but honestly, do not know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and they don't say. Anyways. Yeah. Time to stick a fork in this thing. Uh, thanks. Ow! I appreciate you guys getting up so early in the morning on a Sunday morning to uh, humor me in my odd work and travel what schedule these the days. What's that? Why do you get the invoice? Yeah, right. So the, the sun is shining bright. The sun is shining brightly here in uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, it's uh, it's another day in a town that never sleeps. Uh, I I have to point out to you, I am currently fifty seven dollars ahead playing twenty five cent video poker, which I'm very excited by. And uh, woohoo! Yeah, so uh, I'm a winner. <laughs> Somehow you're playing video poker, uh, just is in perfect alignment. I'm not sure how to take that. <laughs> That's my game, man. In my younger days, yeah, virtual <laughs> poker, not the real stuff. You might get a right. paper cut off those cards. Right. In, in my right. in my younger if, days, I experimented video with video and microchips, and that's just perfect. The perfect, yeah. exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, no human interaction required, in. and uh, I'll, uh, yeah. So I'm. <laughs> I'm, uh, <laughs> all right. Clearly, I'm not going anywhere. Well, don't blow that 75 cents all in one place. That's right. That's, that's right. right. Well, anyways, right. Jeb Burnside is an aviation journalist. He's currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. You can learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com or aviationsafetymagazine.com or avweb.com. Thanks for getting up early, Jeb. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime. Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Learn more about Dave and his work at kitplanes.com, avbuyer.com, slash worldaircraftsales, aea.net, and one of these days, davehigdon.com. Thanks, Dave. Glad to be here. Um, you know, now that I'm wide awake, I think it's time to go find some breakfast. There you go. I'm going to do the, something very similar. I might even take a shower and join the rest of the human race. And I am Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, learn more about me and my work at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. And you can visit us all and check out the forums and the blog and some other stuff that may be appearing soon at uncontrolledairspace.com want to thank everybody for joining us here in the virtual hangar and that's enough talk let's go flying Friar Tux has placed its volume order for Leinenkugel's Summer Shandy. They're checking the North 40 for gopher holes. And silk scarves hang ready for pickup at dry cleaners across the country. Air Venture Oshkosh 2008 is approaching quickly. And you know what that means. Potapalooza 2008. Come see and hear the annual gathering of aviation podcasters scheduled at the forums on the Air Venture grounds Friday, August 1st, right after the air show. Confirmed, planning, or invited to attend are your favorite personalities from Airspeed. The CFI cast, the finer points, the pilot's flight pod log, the pilot cast, the student pilot journal, uncontrolled airspace, and others. Can't join us at the forums? Be sure to listen to EAA Radio AM 1210 and FM 100.7. Potapalooza is tentatively slotted to be broadcast live on EAA Radio on Friday with possible repeat broadcasts over the ensuing days. Potapalooza 2008, scheduled for Friday, August 1st, after the air show at the forums on the grounds of EAA AirVenture 2008. Be there!